For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hello and welcome to the Rock Podcast. In today's teaching, we see the Lord Jesus drive out of the temple all of the things that are distracting God's people from focusing on Him. Now, let's join guest speaker Pastor Jim with a message entitled, A Passion for Holiness. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to the sanctuary for tonight's Bible study. All right, so tonight we're going to be in John's Gospel, Chapter 2. John's Gospel chapter two. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and bust it open to John chapter two. And while you guys are doing that, I'm going to pray and ask God's blessing on our time in his holy word. Heavenly Father, we thank you this evening for your word. We know that the Bible is not a book that was simply written by man. Rather, it was inspired by you by the Holy Spirit of the living God. Holy men of God were carried along by the Holy Spirit and they wrote down the words that we have before us. And so we know that you have something in here for us tonight uh, because the Bible says that your word is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that we can be thoroughly equipped to do the things that you have called us to do down here. And so, Father... I ask that you would take your Holy Spirit anointed, powerful, truthful word and my simple message and make a difference in our hearts and lives tonight because it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Now, any person who sets out to be a business owner and especially in retail understands the importance of having a prime location. You understand the importance of having a good spot. You want to have a visible storefront where lots of people can see where you're at, where you can get a lot of foot traffic so you can make a lot of money. But not everyone who goes into the retail business thinks things through when picking their spots. For example, downtown Santa Rosa, I noticed that the Starbucks coffee shop is right across from their main competitor, Pete's Coffee. And in my mind, that makes absolutely no sense. That's not a good business strategy to be right across the street from your main competitor. How about this one? I was reading the Facebook page of the Curves Fitness Studio over in Florida, (laughs) and uh, they were giving directions to their fitness studio, and this is what it says. Uh, We are located on Route 41 in Towles Plaza, just past the Dunkin' Donut Shop. (laughs) Are you kidding me, people? That's not a good business strategy. I'm not sure if that's good or if that's bad to have your fitness studio right next door to a donut shop. Either you're going to lose your customers to the donuts or you're going to gain a lot of customers. Interesting business strategy there. How about this one? On on Tuesday afternoons at 12 p.m., the Rainbow Bar and Grill hosts a local AA meeting. (laughs) Are you kidding me? 
That is a bad business strategy. You're gonna lose all of your customers to the AA meeting anyway. So not everybody thinks things through when going into business. And that kind of reminds me of our text tonight where some business owners, some merchants set up shop in the temple of God. They set up their business in the church sanctuary. And so of course, they're going to be evicted tonight by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're gonna learn three powerful lessons concerning the nature of Jesus uh, in our study. Now, John chapter 20 and verse 31 gives us the purpose as to why the apostle John wrote this incredible book. He says, these things are written, these 21 chapters that we have here in this gospel, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and so that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so this particular passage that we are going to read tonight was intentionally included in the record for us so that if you don't know Jesus, you will come to know him. And so that if you do know Jesus, you will grow up in your faith in him. And so I believe that God is going to speak to us tonight. So John chapter two, and we'll start uh, with verses 13 through 17. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So let's pause right there and let's get a little bit of context. And so John the apostle is gonna start by giving us a real historical setting. He's going to give us a time and he's going to give us a place. The time is Passover, the 14th day of the month of Nisan, which is uh, the first month of the Jewish festive calendar. And then he gives us a place where this this happened, Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, the Washington DC, if you would, of the nation of Israel. What I like about the Bible is that it gives us these historical settings. These are real people, real places, real events recorded by a real eyewitness. The Bible is not a book that was made up and invented by a bunch of guys who just wanted to write a book about God. It really happened. It's a trustworthy record for us. Now, We're told that Jesus was going to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. This is one of three Passovers that are recorded for us in John's gospel. The first one here in our text, the second Passover that's recorded is in chapter six and verse four. And then the third Passover that's recorded is in John chapter 11 and verse 55. And this is how we date the ministry of Jesus Christ being some three and a half years by these three Passovers that are recorded here in John's gospel. Now, Jesus 
came to Jerusalem because all Jewish males were required by the law to come to celebrate three particular feasts throughout the year. To come to celebrate the Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, some 50 days or so later, and then, of course, the Feast of Tabernacles, which happened in the fall. So Jesus comes to Jerusalem in obedience to the Old Testament law. Now, you guys are familiar with the Passover celebration. It commemorated the Jewish salvation from bondage to the Egyptians for some 400 years. 400 years in slavery. Now, we've all had a bad job or two, but nothing compares to being a slave, to being whipped and beaten every day and forced into hard labor. And so, on one particular occasion, God decided he was going to bust the Jews out. He was going to bust them out of slavery. And so he told Moses that he was going to send a series of 10 plagues upon the nation of Egypt. And the 10th plague was going to finally set the Jews free. It was to be the, the plague of the death of the firstborn. The firstborn of every man and every beast would die on the 14th day of the month of Nisan. Now, what's interesting to me is that four days before the Passover was to happen, God told the Jewish people to select a lamb, to pick out a lamb. So they had this foreknowledge, four days in advance, that this particular lamb, this lamb was going to die a substitutionary death. And so the people of God knew it was either him, the lamb, or it was me. It's either him or me who's going to die. And so they had this incredible foreknowledge. So on that 14th day of the month, God came through Egypt. He struck down the firstborn of every man and of every beast, except for the houses that he came to that had the blood of the lamb painted on the doorposts and on the top, on the lintel. And so the Jewish Passover is really a celebration that they were delivered, that they were rescued, that they were set free by the blood of a lamb. And I just find it interesting that before this Passover that we're reading about right here, in years before the Passover, at which Jesus was going to be sacrificed. In John chapter one, John the Baptist points to Jesus and he says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This foreknowledge, this is the one. This is the one who's going to deliver you. This is the one who's going to set you free from your sins. It's either him or you. So there's a little bit of context. Uh, Jesus has arrived here then at the temple during one of the most sacred celebrations that the Jewish people have. And he finds things not as they should be. He finds that the people of God are completely distracted. He finds that the people of God are completely given over to worldliness and to materialism. And so he's going to respond and by his response, we learn three things about Jesus. And the first thing that we're going to learn about him is that he has a passion for holiness. Jesus has a passion for holiness. Our God, Jesus Christ, has a passion for holiness. So he's there at the temple. The temple is the place where God and man 
come together. It's the place where God and man meet. The sinner would come to the temple to bring their sacrifice, to bring their animal that would die for their sins. It would be, they would bring their sacrifices just to declare their, their allegiance to him and their devotion to him and their fellowship with him. The temple was a place where they would pray and they would have fellowship with one another. It was to be a place that everybody could come as well. Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 7 God says, my house is to be a house of prayer for all the nations. Everybody's welcome. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. My house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. But here in our text, the temple authorities, the religious rulers, those who managed the temple affairs, they were allowing merchants. They were allowing business owners in the temple, in the area of the temple where the non-Jewish people were permitted to be. And so Jesus is going to respond. Check out verse 14. It says, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. Now, imagine with me for just a moment. Use your imagination that you came to church tonight you came to Calvary Chapel of the Rock to, to fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You came to the Rock tonight to, to sing praises to Jesus, to lift up his great and mighty name, and to sit down and to listen to the teaching of God's word uninterrupted, just to focus on him, the one who loves you with this everlasting love. And the moment you came into the church sanctuary, things weren't are as they usually are. These entire rows of chairs were gone. They had been removed. And in their place were set up all of these stalls, all of these animal stalls everywhere, lining the entire wall. And instead of people sitting over here, you see tons and tons of sheep, herds of cattle, herds of sheep. And you see cages everywhere of pigeons. Do you think that would throw you off a little bit? Do you think that you would come in here ready to worship the Lord? You come into church, all right, I'm ready to worship the Lord. And then you hear, moo, moo, bah, bah. You'd be scratching your head wondering what in the world is going on in the church. Imagine with me just for a second how crowded it would feel, how cramped it would be in here. Imagine the smell. Imagine the smell. Animals aren't clean, are they? All the herdsmen, they have to bring in all of the feed so there's hay everywhere. If you have allergies, I mean, we got people in, with hay fever, people sneezing up a storm. Imagine the bugs. You go out into the lobby to get one of those delicious peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and to fill up your coffee cup. And if you've ever seen like an animal in a barnyard, they have bugs all over them. And so those bugs are gonna be on your PBJ sandwiches. You might have something floating in your coffee. This is what these people were experiencing. This is, was a reality for them. You would be grossed out. You would be disgusted. You'd have to watch where you were stepping because of the grotesqueness of what was taking place. Just imagine that sight. 
do you think that you would be able to focus on the Lord? This was the place where the Gentiles came. This was their sanctuary. They were only permitted to be in the outer courts. And so that was their church. That's where they would come and be taught the Bible by the rabbis. That's where they would come and lift up their prayers. That's where they would come and have fellowship. But right in the midst of their church sanctuary, all of that was taking place. Imagine that. Imagine how hard it would be to focus on the Lord. Now imagine with me for a second that you came to church tonight. You're expecting to worship the Lord and, and focus on him. And, and the moment you walked in, your door, in the doors, you weren't handed a bulletin and you weren't greeted by greeters, but you saw a couple little kiosks there and people from Chase Bank and people from Wells Fargo just set up in there. Hi, welcome to Chase Bank. How can I help you today? You're there to worship the Lord, but people are taking care of their business transactions. You know, people have their bags of change and they're like, hey, can you change this in? I'd like all these pennies and quarters. Would you like 20s or 50s, sir? That's what was taking place there. It was a bank. Have you ever been inside of a bank? Imagine doing your devotions inside of a bank. The bank is a weird place to be. It's quiet. Everyone's kind of trying to keep to themselves. They don't want you to see their receipts. It's, it's not a place where you'd be praying. It's not a place where you'd be reading your Bible. It's not a place where you'd be having fellowship. But here, in the temple of God, the place where God's people were coming to worship him and to get into his word and to pray, in our text, we have a bank and we have a barnyard. We have a bank and we have a barnyard. A desecration of that which is holy, of that which is set apart for God. And so Jesus is going to respond with passion because Jesus has a passion for holiness. And so he's going to make a whip of cords and he's gonna drive out those animals. He's gonna drive out those merchants. He's gonna drive out those distractions. He's gonna drive out that which is taking away from the worship and exaltation of almighty God. You might say, well, that's a little extreme, Jesus. A whip? You really had to come with a whip, Jesus? Couldn't you have just gone up to the merchants and just said, excuse me, this is the temple of God. People are here to worship him. Can you please take your lucrative business that you're making a lot, a lot of money with and move it outside of the temple compound where you won't make as much money? Couldn't you have just done that, Jesus? A little bit extreme, don't you think? I don't think so. Um, here's what D.A. Carson has to say. Jesus' physical action was forceful, but not cruel, one does not easily drive out cattle and sheep without a whip of cord. So the business owners wouldn't have left without Jesus using some sort of forceful action because they were making a ton of money. And Jesus couldn't just stand there and call the sheep and call the cattle and call the birds, say, here, sheepy, 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 come on, let's leave the temple. Here, oxen, 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 come on, let's leave the temple. Here, birdie, 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 come on, let's leave the temple. No. Jesus is not an infeminate man. He's not a girly man. He's a man's man, and he has a passion for holiness, and God's people are being distracted. 
And so he's going to make a whip and he herds those animals. He herds them right out of the temple. He drives those beasts right out of the church. Now, the first time I read this passage as a brand new Christian, I just imagined Jesus making this whip and beating the people with it. Just running around like a madman, just whipping people, whip, whipping the merchants, you know, beating the cows and beating the sheep and picking up the, the bird cages and just throwing them across the, across the temple. But that's not what's taking place at all. If you read in your text, it says that Jesus told uh, the guys to carry out those pigeons. He wasn't being cruel. He wasn't beating anybody. He wasn't beating the animals. He was being a cowboy and he was hurting those animals. Check out this uh, quote I got from Uh, (laughs) AmericanCowboy.com. Pretty cool. All right. Talking about the whip, he says, the tool doesn't strike the animal. Rather, the distinctive crack of a well-placed throw just over their heads usually elicits a response. And so Jesus is being a cowboy. He's got the whip. He's not whipping the animals. He's not throwing the cages. He's cracking the whip above their heads. And the animals are being herded and led out of the temple. He's driving out those distractions. He overturns the tables of the bank tellers saying, not here. And of course, they're going to leave. So Jesus has a passion for holiness. He wants nothing to take away from our focus on the Lord. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with what these business owners, uh, with these businesses in and of themselves. They were providing a valuable service. The pilgrims that were coming there to Jerusalem were traveling from all over the empire. Some people were traveling days, some people weeks, some people months. And so it's really difficult to travel with animals. I mean, I had to drive down here today with two kids and I can't even begin to tell you, you know, how challenging that was, let alone, (laughs) right, honey, let alone with animals. I mean, trying to herd some sheep and oxen all the way across the country, I mean, that's difficult. And so to be able to come to the temple and to buy your sacrifice there, typically those merchants set up their shop on the Mount of Olives, okay? And so they were providing a valuable service. And then, of course, uh, the money changers. I mean, people coming from all over, all over the empire, they had different currencies. And so when they came into town, they traded in their currency for the currency that they used there in the temple. And they used a Tyrian coin because of its purity and high silver content. So they were providing a valuable service, but these good things, these good businesses were in the wrong place. And they were taking away from the worship of God. They were affecting people's prayer life. These good things were distracting people from God. And these good things were causing people to miss out on their relationship with the Lord. And so Jesus wouldn't stand for it. His passion consumed him, and he drove them all out. Now, it is interesting that you and I, if you're a born-again Christian, if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, are called the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19 Jesus is in the temple. If you're a believer in him, he is inside of you. He's inside of the temple. 
And the question that I think that we should all ask ourselves on a regular basis is what does Jesus see inside of the temple? What is Jesus seeing in your life today, right now? What does Jesus see? Does he see a bunch of merchants who have set up shop in the temple of your heart and your life? Does he see a bunch of wild animals, a bunch of beasts in your life? Are there good things in your life, good things that have unfortunately taken preeminence over the Lord in your life? They're in the wrong place. They should be down here, Jesus number one, but things are flip-flopped. And now your hobbies or whatever else it is have taken preeminence in your life. What does Jesus see in the temple? Are there unholy things in your life? Are there things like sexual immorality, materialism, lust, drug use, selfishness? Are those the kind of things that Jesus is seeing in your life? There are two things that Jesus wants to do in us, in his temple. He wants to drive out that which is unholy. He wants to drive that which is unholy out of our hearts and out of our lives. And he wants to drive into us a passion for that which is holy. He wants to give us a zeal for the things of God, a passion for the things of God, a passion for holiness. And so my exhortation to you is to allow Jesus to do in your life what he did in our text to drive those things out. So search your hearts. Ask Jesus to show you what needs to be driven out of your life once and for all. So let's move on, verses 18 through 22. Then the Jews demanded of Jesus, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So we talked first about how Jesus has a passion for holiness And now let's talk about how Jesus has the power of resurrection. So the Jewish leaders and the temple authorities come to Jesus and they say, who do you think you are? Who gave you the right to manage the temple affairs? Who do you think you are? Show us your credentials. We didn't give you this power. We didn't give you this authority. Who do you think you are? Show us a sign Jesus. And so he gives them an enigmatic statement in verse 19. He says, destroy this temple. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up again. But the statement goes right over their heads. They do not get it at all. They're thinking that Jesus is referring to the literal temple compound that they're standing in. It was a magnificent sight. Herod the Great started this temple improvement project in 19 BC. And it continued long after his death, some 46 years up to the time of Jesus and our particular text. 
Josephus, writing about the temple, says that the stones weighed up to 140 tons each. And those of you who have gone over to Israel, who went on this last visit, got to see some of those stones. Absolutely marvelous and mind-blowing. Now, in comparison, Solomon's temple, which is just, you can read about it in the book of 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles. His temple only took seven years to build and the entire inside of the temple was overlaid with gold. So that would have been a sight to see, but that only took seven years. Whereas Herod's temple, Herod the Great, took 46 years. And so it must have been absolutely a sight to see. And so what they're saying uh, to Jesus is that's, so when Jesus said that, they're thinking that's absolutely impossible. That's absolutely impossible, Jesus. You think that you are going to destroy this temple? It took 46 years to build this temple. But Jesus, of course, as you guys know, is not referring to a literal temple. He's not saying, you guys can get out the bulldozers. You guys can get out the tractors. You can tear this temple down. I'm not even worried about it because I know some really good contractors and we'll have this bad boy up in three days It'll be beautiful, better than it was ever before. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's re- Jesus is referring to something far more impossible for man to raise up. Jesus, in his enigmatic statement, is referring to the resurrection of his own body, the resurrection of his temple after its destruction, after the destruction of his own body. Now, Jesus, being God of very God, he is the temple of Almighty God. Remember, God is a spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. And the second person of the Holy Trinity, Jesus Christ, he came down and he clothed himself in a human body. God became a man. And so that man, Jesus Christ, was literally God in a body. It was the temple of Almighty God. John chapter one and verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word for dwelt is tabernacle, the tent, the place where God dwells. And so Jesus was the literal temple of Almighty God. And so when he's saying, destroy this temple, I believe he's pointing to himself. Destroy this temple. Destroy the true, the the temple proper. Destroy the temple of God, and I will raise it up again. Now, Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 40, the Jews once again are asking Jesus for a sign. And Jesus said, this is the only sign you're going to get. It's the sign of the prophet Jonah. Just like Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so too the Son of Man is going to spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. So it's interesting that in both instances, Jesus gives a prophecy. He says, this is the ultimate sign that I'm going to give you people. I'm going to predict what you're going to do to me. I'm going to predict exactly what's going to happen to me. 
in the very place that I used a whip of cords to drive out that which is unholy, in the very place right next door in the Antonio Fortress, you guys are going to use a whip of cords to destroy this temple, to destroy that which is holy. I'm going to use a whip to drive out that which is unholy. You guys are going to use a whip to drive out the holy one from the temple and from the city of Jerusalem. You're going to use that whip to destroy the temple of God. And boy, oh boy, was the temple of God destroyed. Boy, oh boy, was the body of Jesus Christ destroyed. Isaiah chapter 52, speaking about the death and the suffering and the passion of your Savior and of my Lord says that after his beating, he was so marred that you couldn't even recognize that he was a human being anymore. So bloodied, so bruised, so swollen. The whip, the scourge with the pieces of bone and metal and glass that tore down that temple, that ripped that temple to shreds. The crown of thorns that was placed on the temple. The nails that went through his hands and the nail that went through his feet. They destroyed that temple. They destroyed the temple of God. But what they did not understand, what they did not understand is that he was allowing the destruction of the temple for their own good. Jesus was allowing the destruction of the temple for our own good. You see, God was going to commandeer their evil actions. He was going to commandeer their evil actions and then use them as a tool through which he could sacrifice and put to death the Lamb of God for the sins of the world. And so he says, destroy this temple because it's going to be for your own good. Destroy this temple. God's going to use your evil actions for your own good because he loves you. Then he says, but I will raise it up again. I love that. After the temple of God was destroyed, after the body of Jesus Christ was ripped apart and beyond human recognition, he raised himself up from the dead three days later. Jesus Christ is alive and he has the power of resurrection. And if he can raise himself from the dead, ladies and gentlemen, then he can raise you from the dead as well. If he can raise himself from the dead to live forever, to be immortal, then he can raise you from the dead to live forever and to be immortal and to have eternal life if you would only put your trust in him. If Jesus can raise himself from the dead, then he can also raise you up from depression or from anxiety or from worry because he has the power of resurrection. If Jesus can raise himself up from the dead, then he can raise you up out of drug addiction. You're looking at someone who was a drug addict. You're looking at someone who had serious drug problems, but Jesus Christ has the power of resurrection. And he raised me up out of that, just like he can raise you up out of that. 
If Jesus Christ raised himself up from the dead, then he can raise your marriage up. He can transform your marriage because he has the power of resurrection. But you have to believe. It doesn't matter how destroyed your life is. It doesn't matter if your life is just a pile of rubble. Jesus Christ has the power of resurrection and he can rebuild it. He can make it more magnificent than you could ever dream or imagine because he has the power of resurrection, but you have to believe. The disciples, it says right there, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. You have to believe the scripture that Jesus Christ is alive and that he has the power of resurrection if you want to experience it in your life, if you want to experience it forever. You have to believe, you have to trust in him. Amen? All right, let's finish up verse 23 to the end. Now, while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in man. All right, so we talked about how the Lord has a passion for holiness, about how he has the power of resurrection. Now let's close by talking about how he perceives the heart of man. Now, what if you knew what other people were thinking? That would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? I mean, if I could look at you right now and knew exactly what you were thinking, it's kind of freaky, isn't it? You would have an upper hand in every area of life. You would never uh, put your foot in your mouth. I would never get in trouble with my wife, ever. I would always have the right things to say. I'd be a really good businessman, a great gambler, probably. I mean... uh, If you knew what other people were thinking, you would basically be like God, wouldn't you? But you don't know what other people are thinking because you're not God. But Jesus knows what people are thinking. Jesus knows what's going on inside every human being, inside every single person because Jesus Christ is God. He knows what's going on inside of you. In John chapter four, he meets a woman at a well, a Samaritan woman, and uh, he tells her, you know, I know that you've had five husbands, and the guy that you're living with right now, he's not even your husband. And so she runs back to her village, and she says, come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. He knows everything about me. You see, Jesus knows what's going on inside of you because he is your God. He can read you like a book because he is your maker. Now, you guys ever had pudding before? That smooth, rich, chocolatey deliciousness. I absolutely love pudding. Now, what's cool about pudding, uh, in my mind, is that it's one of the things that I am able to make. (laughs) One of the few things that I'm able to make. And so when I'm eating my pudding, I'm so proud because I made it. 
And I know all of the ingredients in that pudding, namely the milk and that mystery packet of powder. <laughs> I know what's in the pudding because I am the maker of the pudding. So too with Jesus. He is your God. He is your maker. And so he knows you from the inside out. He is your maker. Now here, our text says that many believed in Jesus when they saw the signs that he was doing, but he didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in them. He knew that they weren't the real deal, that they weren't true believers. F.F. Bruce, one of my favorite favorite commentators, and I quote, he says, there are two levels of believing in Jesus' name. That's spoken of in chapter one and verse 12 of John's gospel, which carries with it the authority to become God's children, and that spoken of here. You see, there are two types of believers in the world, two types of people who say that they believe in Jesus Christ. The real deal and the nominal. Those who have an, an unreserved personal commitment and those who are just giving lip service. Those who have an authentic relationship with him and those who have a superficial and artificial acknowledgement of him. Two types of believers. Now there's only two people in this room tonight who know where you stand with the Lord. There's only two people in this church sanctuary tonight who know for sure, without a doubt, 100%, if you are an authentic believer in Jesus Christ. And those two people are you and Jesus. You and him. He knows if you have really called upon his name. He knows if you have really put your trust in him. The text says that Jesus didn't entrust himself to these nominal believers. You see, Jesus will give himself completely to you the moment that you give yourself completely to him. When you call upon the name of Jesus, he makes it so simple, by the way. He doesn't make us climb upstairs on our knees, a hundred flights of stairs on our knees, and once we get to the top, then, no, oh, you can have salvation then. He doesn't make you jump through fiery hula hoops, knock on a million doors, hand out a th thousand magazines, empty out your wallets, and then maybe you can have salvation. No. He makes it so simple. Just believe on my name. For whosoever calls upon the name, and the name is Jesus, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That simple. Just call out to me because I'm alive. I rose from the dead. And when you call out to me in prayer and say, Jesus, save me, Jesus, forgive me, I'm gonna respond and I'm gonna reveal myself to you and I'm gonna come into your life. It's going to be an experience. You're gonna begin a relationship with me. And so for the person who does that, who takes that step of faith and calls out to Jesus, he completely entrusts himself to that person. He gives himself completely to that individual. He makes his home in our hearts. He gives us every spiritual blessing. He gives us heaven, forgiveness, the Holy Spirit, a relationship with the Father, Christian fellowship, the brotherhood of the saints, on and on we can go, all of the blessings 
of having Jesus fully committed to us. But for those who don't truly put their trust in Jesus, they receive none of those benefits. They receive none of those blessings. And so tonight, there's only two people who know, and that's you and Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5 says, Examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Make sure you've got the real deal. Make sure you've truly connected with Jesus Christ. And so if you're here tonight and you've never made that connection, even if you've grown up in church, you've gone to church your whole life, or maybe it's your first time here at church tonight, my exhortation is to call on the name of Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, the one who died for you, the one who is alive. Call out to him, and you will receive the most wonderful blessing that there is, a relationship with your God. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much tonight uh, just for the opportunity to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ and to do what we were born again to do, to worship you in spirit and truth. We love your word, Father. We thank you, Jesus, uh, just for uh, the reminders that we see in this text, that you are holy and you have a passion for that which is holy. And so, Lord, we ask that you would drive out of our lives that which is unholy, and that you would help us to, to see those things that are distracting us from that which is most important, and that is you. And we thank you, Jesus, that you have the power of resurrection. You were able to raise your own destroyed body from the dead, and so you're able to raise us up to eternal life and, and also in this life to give us abundant life. And we also... Thank you, Jesus, that you know us from the inside out intimately. And we just want to be real with you, Lord. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's stand for the closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.